and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week's podcast will be about Sudan. The crisis in Sudan is now in its sixth week with no end in sight. Neither the Sudanese armed forces, the SAF, nor the paramilitary rapid support forces, the RSF, have been able to gain decisive victories in the capital Khartoum. Meanwhile, the toll on civilians grows, hundreds have been killed, hundreds of thousands displaced, and people are increasingly wondering how we ended up here, how the conflict will affect the wider region, and what role uh, all the different external players are having in this internal dispute within Sudan. Here to help me make sense of it, we have an all-star cast. First up is Theo Murphy, who's the head of ECFR's Africa program. Also joining us down the line from Where Are You, Barcelona. We have Julian Barnes-Dacy, who's the head of our Middle East and North Africa program. And from Paris, we have Marie Dumoulin, who's the head of our Wider Europe program. The reason we have to have three different program heads is because so many external forces are getting involved in this crisis uh, in Sudan, and hopefully they will help us make sense of how this looks from an African perspective, a Middle Eastern perspective. And uh, Russia is obviously now becoming an endemic part of um, of a lot of the, the political and security crises in the Middle East. So Marie will hopefully be able to tell us a bit more about that. So why don't we start talking about how we got to this point and, uh, and where we are right now. Uh, Theo, do you want to, to give us an overview of the, the two main factions, the SAF and the RSF, and their leaders as well as their main backers and, and what the road to this crisis was? Sure, gladly. Um, just to, to summarize how we got here, there was um, a time bomb baked into the transition agreement that followed the ousting of longtime dictator, President Omar al-Bashir of Sudan, by uh, a mass popular democratic movement in April 2019. When when that force ousted the dictator, uh, it didn't manage to remove all remnants of the uh, former regime. And that takes us to the two generals who are fighting now. There's the head of the Sudanese army, the SAF, and that's General Borhan. And then there's the head of the Rapid Support Forces, a uh, general known as Hemeti. Um, the Rapid Support Forces, as you said, are a paramilitary force. They don't hail from the center of Sudan, where the elites reign, but rather from the periphery, from Darfur. And they were installed by former President Bashir as a kind of Praetorian guard and as a way of putting a check on the military and other parts of the security establishment to ensure that no single one of them became too large. So these two generals had to collude with the protest movement to oust Bashir. So basically a critical mass built of protests on the street. And at a certain point, these two generals took the decision that the situation was no longer tenable and ushered Bashir out the door. But the price of that was that they had to remain in the transition. And the reason there's a time bomb in the transition is that both these generals basically have aspirations uh, to rule. The armed forces want to keep their privileged position that they had under President Bashir. And General Hameti 
is creating a kind of state within a state. So not just an army within a state, but a state within a state with the backing uh, and support of certain key uh, powers of the region who thought their interest best bettered via him. Great. So um, if we think about the, this competition, which has been building up for a, a long time, um, it'd be also interesting to kind of talk a bit more about the, the sort of external backers and how other people are lining up on that. Julian, do you want to tell us a bit about, because about, obviously the one of the important players in this is, uh, is Saudi Arabia and the role of the, the, not just Saudi Arabia, but other Gulf countries are, are increasingly part of the, the politics of Sudan and there are other kind of external players as well. How do you see um, the sort of regional geopolitical posturing um, coming together with the, the internal power struggles within Sudan? Hi, Mark. Um, and, and thanks for having me here again. And and yeah, I mean, I think um, Theo can really talk to the, the, the precise details here, but clearly um, there is a strong regional dimension um, unfolding here, one that can both act as a, a break towards further escalation, but but which many fear kind of would accelerate uh, the, the 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 conflict. And I think it's clear that on one side, um, you do have a number of, of of leading Arab countries who view Sudan very much in their orbit, um, the Egyptians, the Saudis, and the Emiratis in particular. Um, and then on the other hand, of course, you you, you also have a number of African countries, and, and, and Theo again can, can speak to that. But but from an, uh, an Arab perspective, um, you have uh, the Egyptians who are very much lined up behind the army. Um, you have the Emiratis who have um, uh, lined up. It seems more more forcefully behind the RSF, but have also been building out ties with with um, with the army and them and the Saudis uh, both view. Uh, Sudan is as strategically important in terms of its uh, geopolitical geography, in terms of its agricultural resources, um, and they've invested quite a lot um, in, in in kind of propping up and 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 and, and doubling down on investment since um, the transition away from Bashir. Um, and I think you know a lot of the questions unfolding right now are the extent to which they are going to double down um, behind their alleged allies in the country. The Egyptians have been very strong in saying that that the army must prevail. Um, the Saudis have played more of a moderating role, it would seem, and they obviously have just joined with the Americans in brokering um, an initial ceasefire in Jeddah um, in, in, in recent days. I think the wild card is very much the Emiratis and the extent to which they will back uh, this non-state actor, the RSF, and, and try and push forward um, their interests through them. They have um, uh, built out a network of, of allies across the region, often non-state actors. They've often tied that to Mediterranean ports. Um, to, to sorry to to, to to ports across the, the Red Sea we've seen that in Yemen we've seen them striking deals in, in Sudan to try and build out a, I think a six billion dollar investment in a port um so I think the big question is the extent to which they are going to double down on on support for the RSF um against the wishes of, of the Egyptians and perhaps the, even the the Saudis who very much want to see stability um and, and not get sucked into a new Syria like conflict that, that could um, derail some of their own internal um, transformation agendas going on right now. So there's a lot of a lot at play here, um, a lot of different ends, a lot of potentially escalatory um, dynamics. As someone who's looked at Syria um, over the last decade, there's obviously a, a risk of something mirroring that. Um, and one would hope that the example of, of what that has done to the region would lend um, itself to, to a degree of, of strong caution in terms of trying to push forward a zero-sum conflict here. Um, so I like to kind of look at 
the risks of regional spillover and some of the um, echoes or not, which we might have from Syria. But b- before we do that, one of the other backers of the RSF um, uh, is uh, meant to be the the Wagner Group, the Russian um, mercenary or um, uh, private military uh, company, which we've seen a, a very active, uh, not just in Ukraine, but in uh, in Mali, in the Central African Republic and other places. Marie, do you want to talk a bit about the Russian stakes? Is this just a Wagner Group thing or is it the Russian state that's um, uh, getting involved as well? And, and how uh, are they positioning themselves? What's their end game in this? I think it is broader than just Wagner. Um If you look back, uh, there was a traditional um, military cooperation between Sudan and Russia over the last years. Sudan has been buying um, Russian weapons and military equipment um, for quite a long time. The relationship has um, become stronger with Wagner's involvement uh, beginning in 2017 um, in gold extraction, but also Uh, with the usual um, package of security uh, services, disinformation services, etc. But in parallel, you've had a stronger involvement of Russian state institutions, um, also with the signing of an agreement on a possible naval base in Port Sudan. Um, The agreement was signed uh, in November 2020. Um, So the question now is whether you have a convergence of interests between um, Wagner and the Russian state that is continuing or whether you will have a a divergence um, due to the uh, various stakeholders that you have in the current crisis. Um, Since 2019, um, um, Russia has managed to keep um, its interest in Sudan. Wagner has heavily invested in Emeti, um, who was very much... Um, one of its proxies, both in terms of plundering gold resources from Sudan, uh, but also in terms of um, security cooperation. There are rumors that Hemeti has been supported over the last weeks uh, through Wagner forces, uh, in mostly in Libya. The question is whether at some point the Russian state will continue supporting this Wagner policy or whether it will try to sort of balance um, the support to Hemeti with um, more contacts with with Burhan, um, because ultimately um, there are security interests of Russia in the region that go beyond just the entrepreneurial um, approach of Wagner. Sudan is very much um, a critical link between um, Russia's policy in North Africa, in Libya, and um, in Central African Republic, and beyond that in, in the Sahel. And it's also, I mean, the, the... When you say it's a critical link, you mean that it's a kind of base from which they conduct these military operations? Yeah, it has functioned as a base to yeah, promote uh, its interests in the wider region. It's also, the naval base is also to be seen in a wider regional perspective with a view to the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. But I I guess we can come back to that later. Okay. So Theo, um, you've been studying this very closely for a very long time. Sudan is a, a huge country. It's a, in the heart of a kind of pretty troubled region already. Um, can you explain a bit more both, you know, what the risks of regional spillover are, why stability in Sudan is 
is important to, to the kind of wider region? What's at stake for Europeans beyond wanting to to prevent uh, this kind of senseless human suffering that that um, so many Sudanese people have uh, have experienced already? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's sort of three possible scenarios. There's one where the where the army wins, so the SAF General Burhan, and in that scenario, you see. Burhan consolidating his influence, you see the former regime elements, the Islamist elements that were behind President Bashir, who are now working well with Burhan, sort of re-emerging. And that is, you know, possibly the death knell of, of Sudan's democracy movement. So not very good. You have, you have a second one, which is a bit more of an outlier scenario, where Himeti wins, the RSF. Um, and I think, you know, here you would see some pretty radical transformation because you have somebody outside of the elite coming in to, to take over. Um, but, you know, his track record has not been great. He's got a lot of blood on his hands and um, almost the entire region around Sudan would be aligned against him, uh, including Egypt and others as well. And then I think finally there's, there's kind of a, a long-running conflict, a sort of stalemate where neither side decisively wins, the conflict goes on. And the problem there is that it's going to draw in the neighborhood because all of the neighborhood um, has pretty high stakes in seeing the outcome uh, in Sudan swing in its favor. The, the, the Russians, to pick up on what Marie was saying, are, are smart here in hedging their bets. The state, the Russian state, backs the army, but it uses Wagner to be behind Hemeti. And the bigger payoff for Russia is if Hemeti wins, because Hemeti is, is quite isolated internationally. Aside from the Emiratis and, and Russia via Wagner, there's nobody else. And given all of the, the human rights abuses and all these things that he's committed, he's almost automatically going to end up isolated from us. So, you know, Russia is cultivating there a nice kind of client for the future. And in terms of the stakes um, for Europe, um, first of all, I mean, I think there's something to be said here about Europe's, rule, uh, Europe's role in the world. Um, this is not far from Europe's southern shore. We have in Europe an active policy towards peacemaking and stabilization, um, which is now you know, falling apart um, before our eyes. And we don't seem to be able to exert any kind of influence either on the regional players who are incredibly influential right now, um, or on the Sudanese actors on the ground. We've got contagion knock-on, so we've got not just Sudan, but the countries around it who are in various states of transition themselves, who share armed groups and tribes across borders. That will inevitably be inflamed if the conflict continues. Uh, and then, you know, last but not least, I mean, migration is an issue. Um, this isn't Syria. There isn't a land route where, you know, millions can go. But the number already now of new displaced since the conflict broke out uh, has risen to a million. OK, so for now, a lot of that is internally displaced. They're moving around Sudan. But there is a large contingent that's moving from Sudan north into Egypt. And Julian will know more about this. But from Egypt, there is, of course, a route that goes via Libya and to, to Europe's southern shores from there. Well, there's a lot to chew on, in monks, so maybe we should take some of the different bits you mentioned um, separately. Um, should we start with the sort of regional spillover question? I mean, Julian, you talked a lot earlier about the 
the whole question of of Syria, which is sort of haunting us both because um, so much suffering, so many people killed, but also there was such a sense of helplessness um, if you look at the the role that Europe has played um, during that tragedy. How you know what sort of echoes do you see um, coming out of here? Do you think it could be something as as kind of um, as as big and as as uncontrollable as as the Syrian conflict? I mean, my initial instinct is to say no. I think, um, you know, in terms of the role of, of the Arab states, um, they, in a sense, have learned the painful lesson of, of, of a decade of, of conflict in Syria. And I think the, the desire in the region um, is very much now to move into an opposite direction. I mean, it, it, you know, there's, it, it, it's doesn't go unnoticed, of course, that we're talking about this, just as Assad was welcomed back into the Arab League and, and, and kind of joined the other Arab leaders in, in, in Jeddah this past week. So I think, you know, there is a general consensus in the region that, that, that Arab states want to move away from, from these kind of conflicts. They don't want to get sucked into to a new regional war. They want to concentrate on um, internal development and, and, and kind of economic growth. And, you know, particularly the Saudis here. I mean, Sudan is just across uh, the water from them. They, they, they have big interests in, in developing this as a tourist destination, um, an economic hub. I mean, all of this would be imperiled by, by a big conflict in Sudan. The Egyptians themselves are, of course, very wary about refugee inflows into, into Egypt at a time when they are very vulnerable, have big economic uh, problems. You know, again, I think the key outlier here is the Emiratis. How much are they willing to, to really come back, come down behind the RSF? My sense is that they probably won't go all in here. I think that, that again, their interest is not one of, of, of massive escalation. They don't see this in an existential fashion, although kind of Theo can talk a bit about kind of the, the kind of the narrative of, of kind of Islamists and, and, and secularism and the, how that plays out. So I think the Emiratis are more likely to be focused on narrow interests rather than a big battle for Sudan. So so in, in, in one sense, my instinct would be to say, no, the region doesn't want to go there. There's enough of a combined interest um, to, to prevent it happening there. The Saudis are leaning in hard to try and prevent this from happening. Um, but of course, you know, a lot goes to, uh, in the end, a lot will depend on what the local actors themselves do. And, and, and like elsewhere, um, their ability to kind of instrumentalize external support. And you look at the RSF and what they may be able to do with the Russians or or the Emiratis and, and, and the way in which they will be able to maintain their own position. I mean, they don't need an army coming in beside them, behind them, I guess, Theo, but but certainly kind of a steady stream of lower level support would enable them to keep up a fight um, and to inflict a lot of damage on Sudan and, and the Sudanese people, even if it doesn't kind of turn into to something wider and bigger as, as w- was, was seen in Syria. From a Russian perspective, where do you think this fits in? Because obviously, one of the big diff between this and Libya and Syria is that Ukraine is now a full-scale war for, for for Russia and, in fact, for the Wagner Group as well. So how does this fit into the kind of bigger picture of Russian war fighting? Well, it's a relatively low-cost engagement they have in Sudan. Um, it doesn't cost much to supply weapons to RSF. It doesn't cost, cost much to... Um, yeah, continue engaging with both sides um, and and try to see where they can they have the be- better chances to um, see their interests promoted. Um, it's it's I don't think that the war in Ukraine has a huge impact on that, um, and Wagner has not disengaged massively um, neither from the Central African Republic. Um, 
it's it's a bit more complex in Libya because there are reports that uh, the presence of Wagner is, is is becoming less. But all in all, it's it's really a low cost for potentially high return investment. Um, we have to see it as. Um, and what would the return be? Um, it's really a way to be present in this region that um, that Russians see as strategic, not only because it allows them to just pre- be present in the West's backyard, um, which is very much the way they conceive their engagement in Central African Republic, um, damaging French interests because they see it as a region of French interest. It's, it's same in Mali. Um, but they see it also as um, a region of strate- strategic importance um, in its maritime dimension. Uh, the Indian Ocean was part of Russia's naval strategy, uh, maritime strategy, sorry, uh, over the last years. Um, they have been, um, they actually have been looking into possibilities to have a naval base in the Red Sea for more than 15 years. The first mentions of this possibility date back to 2008. Uh, Back then, Yemen was um, the the country they considered for that. Um, Now they have this agreement with Sudan. The Red Sea and the Indian Ocean are interesting for them, both because of the importance of this region for uh, global energy security, but also because... Uh, maritime trade routes uh, go through this um, through this region, um, and although Russia is not a big international trade actor, um, they see an interest in having a look at how um, the security of these routes uh, is ensured. Uh, so it's not only about. Um, Russia's presence in Africa. It's it's really about Russia projecting itself as a global power. It's also a really smart global order middle power play from Russia. So if you look at Sudan in isolation, it's not that important globally speaking. But Sudan, for the middle powers around it, Saudi, the Emirates, and Egypt, is crucial. So Russia inserts itself into that power equation and by its presence in Sudan makes itself relevant to other more important players. I think it's pretty clever. So we we got limited amount of time left, but there are two sort of big questions which I think we do need to deal with. One is the migration question, which you raised before Theo, and it'd be great to hear from Julian a bit more about how um, people are thinking about that. Um, it's a sad uh, part of the European political debate, but migration is definitely one of the things that drives interest <laughs> in wars in different places. And then we should also talk about diplomacy and the prospects for coming up with some solution to de-escalate the the crisis and what role Europe can play. Maybe Theo, you can kick us off on that. But Julian, do you want to go first? Sure. I mean, you know, I I think first and foremost, this is a a, a massive uh, refugee crisis for for Sudan itself and and, and for the neighboring states. Um, You know, I think Egypt has has already received um, 100,000 or so. You you have Sudanese trying to get across the Gulf. Um, You you have Sudanese fleeing into neighboring African states. So this is something that that is very much um, 
a, a regional issue first and foremost, and there are obviously um, acute, grave humanitarian needs that, that, that need addressing, that need financing, and, and that needs to be an international priority. This is not something that, that is playing over um, into Europe for the moment, but obviously, as Theo said, that, that will be on uh, kind of the agenda and the horizon of, of European thinkers and, and policymakers, and, and hopefully kind of that acts as a, as a spur to try and prevent this from escalating further and, and, and kind of increases the need and the, the sense that Europeans need to engage in this and support the Quad and other actors in ensuring that there is a settlement that prevents escalation. We have seen migration routes going, you know, increasing across the Mediterranean from, from Libya and Tunisia um, this year. There's been quite a sharp increase and there's a real industry of private militias and, and private groups who, who are exploiting the situation there. So obviously there is a concern that, that Sudanese could become part of, of, of that migration wave, but I don't think that's the immediate priority. That shouldn't be, I think, the kind of immediate driver of, of European preventative action here. Um, but it is something that, that, that should be a warning that if the situation is not contained and brought under control, and if there isn't a sustainable um, outcome, and I guess Theo can talk about what that would look like right now, this is something that, that could emerge more forcefully. Sudan is a big country, um, and, and there is a big possibility if escalation occurs for significant, significant waves. Theo, I don't know what you think about what that plays into kind of the, the urgency of a, of a diplomatic route and what could be done to prevent that kind of outcome. Yeah, in terms of the, the, the mediation efforts right now, there's two objectives. The first, stop the fighting. The second, you know, return Sudan civilians and the, and the de- democratic process back on track. Um, there's no little irony in the fact that the mediation is right now anchored by the U.S. on the one hand and on the other hand by Saudi. And it's really difficult to see um, how Saudi has a kind of in principle alignment with that with that democratic objective. The second thing about that construct is that it flies in the face of, of every kind of best practice for mediation in the region. That is, it should be African led. It should be it should involve the region and then it should have, you know, a kind of group of friends, which also includes Europe. The, the mediation track right now, as I said, is U.S. and Saudi Arabia. It's hosted in Jeddah. The European Union, European member states are nowhere to be found in that. Uh, neither is the African Union or, or the region itself. Um, so this is really um, quite unique, I must say. Um, and unfortunately, I think, has, has Europe sitting on the sidelines. Um, there's an argument to be made that the, the, the Gulf players plus Egypt have, you know, the maximum influence on these two generals. So perhaps it's most efficacious to harness that influence together with the U.S. in order to kind of leverage them to the table. Um, but, you know, if that methodology is to hold up, then we need to move very quickly from a, a cessation of hostilities to something political that does involve Europe, Africa, the region, and most importantly, you know, Sudan's Democrats, the civilians, who this is supposed to be all about. At the last Munich Security Conference, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz neatly summarized Europe's difficulty in relating to the Global South, namely that Europe expected the Global South to treat its problems as its own, looking at Ukraine, but didn't reciprocate the gesture. The problems of the Global South are not seen as Europe's. A dynamic like this threatens to emerge over Sudan as well, with Europe treating this as something that it doesn't have bandwidth to grapple with, um, with its plate overflowing with challenges in Ukraine. This would be a grave mistake. All the more so because Russia, which also has its hands full in Ukraine, is managing to mount 
quite an active Sudan policy. Do you think that this is going to work? I mean, some people have argued that the previous kind of ham-fisted Western attempts at peacemaking in Sudan and what have caused the current crisis. Um, do you think that this could actually make things worse or do you think that it is likely to to provide some sort of stable solution which goes beyond the seven-day ceasefire that, that we started with? What, what nothing new is being tried. So the formula that, that, that drove Sudan off the cliff is being repeated now, which was basically a, a U.S. Gulf um, accord, which aimed to push through an elite bargain. So this is basically rehashing it. The same people in charge, particularly on the U.S. side, are in charge of the mediation right now. And, you know, there, there, there's no little discontent uh, in Washington and European capitals um, about the futility of this approach. But let's see, there's, there's been uh, a last ceasefire agreement um, agreed just two days ago. It's supposed to come into effect in 48 hours, so that's any minute now, and it's supposed to hold for seven days. Um, if this one does hold where the previous ones didn't, it does give us something to build upon. Um, but it would be imperative that you know, this is limited to humanitarian access and, and security, cessation of hostilities. It really shouldn't get into any political substance because it has the wrong international and the wrong Sudanese domestic constellation. It doesn't have any of the people who are supposed to be politically in charge, i.e. Sudan civilians and Democrats, um, involved in the least. And it would be really a travesty to use this process, this, this outbreak of fighting between the two generals who are themselves culpable, to then invest them with legitimacy to shape the political outcome in Sudan. It would undo everything that Sudan's Democrats have advanced and the, the cornerstone of European policy in Sudan as well. So what could Europeans do to stop that from happening? Well, I think if they can't get a seat at the table and influence things from kind of external power politics, they could strategically invest right now in helping civilians get a political platform together for the negotiations. Right now, nobody's doing that in Europe. Um, we've been too busy first with the evacuations and the immediate crisis, and I think now trying to run after this Jeddah process and get a you know get a foot in the door and a seat at the table. If that if we if we realize that the power politics don't allow that, let's focus on something where we can get a return on investment and where others aren't, and we could do this together with the African Union and the region. Okay, well, we'll definitely come back and see what happens. Um, clear policy recommendation for Europeans in Theo's last comment. We are out of time now, though, but we have one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. Marie, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I'm reading Mark Galliotti's latest book, uh, Putin's Wars, um, which is looking back at wars Russia has been fighting actually since the 1990s um, and how this has impacted um, the the reforms of the military, uh, but also the polit um, political decision making on security policy. Um, so I'm not, uh, I have not finished the book. I'm still waiting to see what conclusions Mark Galliotis draws about um, the current Russian war in, in Ukraine. But it's interesting also to have in mind that uh, since 1991, Russia has almost constantly been at war somewhere. What about you, Julian? So I'm about to pick up um, a, a new book called A Stranger in Your Own City by Haith Abdul Ahad, a Guardian um, Iraqi journalist. And he's, in a sense, been the, 
to my mind, kind of the most vivid, powerful kind of chronicler of, of, of what's happened across much of the Middle East and Iraq and Syria o- o- over the last decade. And he's just put out this book, um, I, which I guess is, is, is his take on everything that's unfolded in Iraq and Syria. And um, he's always been just a, a very beautiful kind of haunting um, writer of, of, of kind of the tragedies of the, of the region in recent years. So um, I'm, I'm about to get into that. And um, what about you, uh, Theo? I have been uh, deep diving into the last issue of Foreign Affairs, which focuses on the non-aligned worlds, the May-June issue. And it's just great. It's a fantastic collection of essays from around the global south, um, from India, from Africa as well. And I think just really one of, one of the best kind of encapsulations of an incredibly diverse geography of of opinions um and yeah i I recommend it to to your listeners and if you're looking for something shorter than the book the thing which i read over the weekend which um i thought was incredible a that it exists but b actually quite thought-provoking when you read it was an extended uh interview with henry kissinger uh on the eve of his 100th birthday in the economist magazine um it's uh title is the helpfully it's something like how to prevent world war three which would seem like a, a a good goal for all of us um and all listeners of this podcast um if you've enjoyed listening to us please do head to whatever platform you've used to listen to us on and subscribe to future issues so that you can keep abreast of global events and while you are there we would be enormously grateful if you could give us a positive review and a positive rating as well we'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu but for now from theo murphy julian barnes dacey marie dumoulin and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Chiara Breka, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.